0: Would you pray with me as we come to the word this morning? Lord Jesus, if the truth we just sang could really sink in, that you are for us and not against us, how different life would look. Lord, if we could every day, not just on the good days or not just when we're at church and singing, remember that we are a child of God. We are chosen. How different life would look. Would you come now, God, and remind us of that? Remind us of our place in you, who we are because of who you are. So come and do what only you can do this morning, God. Pierce hearts, bring conviction where necessary, encouragement where necessary. You know where each of us are. You know the next step on our path. May you use this time, God, to move us further along, I pray. May we become more like you because we've been with you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So continuing on in the book of Mark, we are finally out of Mark chapter 12. It was like five weeks that we were in Mark chapter 12. But here's the thing. We're out of Mark chapters 12. In Jesus' life, like in the week that he was living, we're still in Tuesday. Okay, Tuesday was a big day on what's often called the Passion Week. Uh, Jesus' final week of ministry leading up to the cross. So if you remember, uh, Jesus started by going into the temple... Uh, on Tuesday morning and immediately his authority was questioned by the Pharisees and then they they said we got to trap him and so they came up with some tricky questions to try to trap him and then he turned the tables on them and then said beware of the scribes and the Pharisees your religious leaders and they're dangerous people and then he watches uh, the widow putting her money into the temple treasury within this long line of, of wealthy people all of this is in one day Okay, it's a big day of ministry. And now we find ourselves in Mark chapter 13, the end of that day, that that evening, as Jesus is leaving uh, the temple complex. And let's jump in, Mark 1 and two. As he was going out of the temple complex, one of his disciples said to him, "'Teacher, look, what massive stones, "'what impressive buildings.' And Jesus said to him, "'Do you see these great buildings?' Not one stone will be left here on another that will not be thrown down. So, uh, we're going we're to take some time and break this down. First, we're going to look at the disciples and kind of what they were seeing, and then what Jesus says. As he was going out of the temple complex, one of his disciples said to him, Teacher, look what massive stones, what impressive buildings. Maybe even from like a hey, Jesus has had a pretty rough day, he seems pretty tired. Jesus, look at how beautiful. Doesn't that put a little pep in your step, Jesus? Look at the temple complex. Chris, go ahead and put the the first picture up there. This is kind of an uh, artist's rendering of what the temple probably looked like through some first century descriptions and things like that. Jesus, look at what massive stones, what impressive buildings. Doesn't that cheer you up a little bit, Jesus? Let's take a look at some of the the things about uh, this temple. This was actually Temple 2B. Some think of it as kind of the third temple, it's the second temple, whatever. There's the original temple that God himself directed Israel to build. And he gave them very specific plans. And it was this incredibly majestic temple where the Ark of the Covenant was in the most sacred place called the Holy of Holies, and God's presence would fill the temple with fire and smoke. The foundations would be shaken when God would enter his house, and it was this glorious thing. And Israel, as they continued to rebel against God and come back to God, rebel and come back, rebel and come back, over hundreds of years, eventually God says, look, I'm done with this. If you keep turning away from me, I'm going to destroy my own house and I'm gonna send you people away from me. And they continued to rebel, and so God sent Babylon to come in, took all the people captive, left just a small remnant back there, mostly just the poor and those that weren't valuable to them, and they completely destroyed the temple. They carried everything valuable off with them to Babylon. They're gone for about 70 years, and then God says, hey, I wanna bring my people back, and I wanna live among them again, and so come back and build the temple. And so uh, God gives them incredible favor. If you read in Ezra and Nehemiah, uh, God gives them incredible favor with the leaders. Babylon had already been overthrown at that point. There's a new king. It's, It's craziness. But he says, Go back and build a temple for your God. So the people come back and they build this temple that there's this weird scene where everyone, basically younger than 70, sees the foundation for the temple being built. And they just start cheering and praising, this is incredible, look at what we've been able to do. Everyone older than 70 that remembers the old temple just starts weeping because they go, what is this? This is tiny. This is so humble. What we saw before was incredible. And so they live with this really kind of humble, small temple for the next couple hundred years. And then enter a guy named Herod. You guys remember Herod at the beginning, like in, uh, in the book of Luke, Herod is the bad guy who finds out that Jesus is coming, that the Messiah is coming, and says, he'd be about two, kill every baby two and under. Like, because no one's going to threaten me for my throne kind of idea. So Herod's a bad, bad guy. About 20 years before then, Herod started, he, he looked at the people of Jerusalem, and he said, they just keep rebelling. They just keep trying to throw off Greece and then Rome, and like, they, they're never happy How could I kind of placate the people? How could I I make them happy and maybe subdue them a little bit? They seem to care a lot about this temple place. And so Herod says, what if I build them a temple bigger than anything they've seen before? Maybe that'll make them happy and kind of keep them under my thumb a little bit. So Herod starts this temple expansion program, taking their humble, meager little temple and turning it into something like this. It took about 80 years for his temple to be completed. He started in 19 BC, so about 20 years before Jesus was born and didn't finish until about 30 years after Jesus died. So th- this is a massive, massive thing. When, when the disciples pointed out to Jesus, again, not just cause like, hey Jesus, what a cool building. Jesus, no one has ever seen anything like this before. It was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world people would come from all over the known world to see the temple in Jerusalem. And his disciples go, what massive stones, what incredible buildings. A couple things about the temple to kind of give you an idea. Chris, if you go to the next picture for me. These doors right here, we've just kind of zoomed in onto the main temple complex. To give you a sense of scale, these doors right here, 50 feet tall by 25 feet wide. So we're talking somewhere in the ballpark of about like a 15-story building. Look at how wide, look at how, how deep this thing would be. When they said what massive stones and impressive buildings, they weren't kidding. The, the outside of the temple, according to Josephus, a first century historian who actually set eyes on the temple and wrote a record about it. He said the outside was covered in gold. I'm just going to read some of what he said plates of gold that were so brilliant that when the sun shone on it, the building was blinding. Where there wasn't gold, there was blocks of marble of such pure white that from a distance, strangers thought there was snow on the temple. When the disciples said, what massive stones, they weren't kidding. Some of these massive stones still exist today uh, in, in basically just a retaining wall that the temple, the whole complex, would have been built on top of. And the size of some of these stones... 50 feet wide, 25 feet high, 15 feet thick. So much so that modern construction cranes couldn't lift them. Like how they even got them into place, it's amazing what you can do with an army of slave labor. What massive stones, Jesus. Isn't this the most impressive thing you've ever seen, Jesus? This temple, the whole complex of it, was the heart of Jerusalem. It was the pride of Israel. They would swear by it. Their life kind of all revolved around it. And his disciples were pointing out, look at how grand. Look at what we have. Look at who we are. And Jesus' response to them, do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left on another that won't be thrown down. Chris, go back to that first picture for me. The, there, that one, thank you. Again, to get a sense of scale, what Jesus is saying would be crazy to them. Not one stone will be left on another. The size of this whole courtyard, this whole wall here, about 500 yards by 400 yards. Let's put that into some scale. Five football fields long, 10 football fields deep. You could fit 50 football fields inside the temple walls, okay? This is massive on a scale that most of us are really going to have a hard time imagining, probably haven't seen anything this size. And Jesus says, yeah, as big as this is, as impressive as this is, not one of those stones will even stand on top of each other by the time we're done. And they're going, Jesus, we don't even know how some of those stones got on top of each other. They're so huge. What do you mean this will be completely leveled. What 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 does that even mean, Jesus? The, the temple again took about 84 years to complete. Seven years after it was completed, it was utterly destroyed. Much as Jesus said, not one stone was left on top of another. There are some that point to this prophecy of Jesus, pointing at the temple and saying it'll be utterly destroyed and they say that's the reason that there's no way the Bible was written like it says it was. It had to have been written hundreds of years later by somebody who already knew what was coming because even uh, non-Christian historians go, if this is an eyewitness account and Jesus literally said this is gonna be destroyed in the manner that it will be, it's miraculous. And so they've they've kind of come up with some workarounds. Maybe it was written about 100 years later by a guy that just called himself Mark wasn't really John Mark and all of this because it's so amazing that what Jesus predicted actually came true because no one could have fathomed it. This was the strongest building in the region. In fact, when Rome came to actually sack Jerusalem, this is where everyone went to hide. And it was so difficult for Rome to actually break into that once they finished killing everyone they could find, they were still so mad at the amount of effort they had to put in that they said, let's destroy it not one stone on top of another. And they spent years methodically destroying the temple. It's not we think now we go, oh man, a couple airstrikes and that thing would be gone. They didn't have that. It literally took years to methodically destroy the temple. The Roman commander said the same thing Jesus did. Don't let one stone stand on top of another. And that's what Rome did. It was such an impressive prophecy that Jesus made that modern historians have had to try to find a loophole because if he really did that, then everything else he said and did has to be true as well. The problem was the Israel, the Israelites had fallen more in love with the temple than with the God who supposedly lived inside of it. You see, when I say God supposedly was dwelling inside of it, it's Because he actually wasn't. The the Holy of Holies, the most sacred part of the temple that was at the heart here in the back, there was a special room that was for the Ark of the Covenant. It was, the Ark of the Covenant was God's throne. He told Israel to build it and he said, that's gonna be my throne. That's gonna be where my presence comes and sits. And it's been gone for hundreds of years by this point in time. In the Holy of Holies was an empty room. There was nothing there. The temple was a shell because God didn't actually live in it and hadn't for hundreds of years. The activity continued, but the temple was uninhabited. The temple was obsolete, and so was the religion that the people were being led to follow. If you remember, again, for us, it's been probably two months ago that we talked about this story. For them, it was that morning Remember the story of the fig tree, where Jesus walks up to this big leafy fig tree, out of season even, and big green leaves everywhere. He walks up because he's hungry. It has no food. And what does he do? Maverick. He curses it. He says, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And the next morning, Tuesday morning, as the disciples are walking with Jesus into the temple courts, they go, whoa, Jesus, look. That fig tree you cursed it died, just like you said it would. And we remember if you remember when we first started looking at that we go this is one of those weird ones that we tend to just move on from. But I think what Jesus was trying to illustrate to them was this tree, it's all leaves and no fruit and it'll be cursed. This tree, it's boasting I have life, but there's actually nothing there to sustain people. And Jesus cursed it and it died. And then he immediately walked in, from from cursing the tree, he walked in and cleansed the temple. Chased people out with whips and this whole thing, saying, the fig tree's an illustration. The temple is the same thing. It's all leaves. It boasts life. It boasts closeness with God. It boasts holiness, but there's actually no fruit Instead, Jesus started to accuse the people that were leading it and calling them uh, a den of vipers and whitewashed tombs. And if you read in Matthew 23, it's a much fuller account uh, of Jesus accusing those in leadership of lying to the people, of leading the people astray, of, of, of using the people. And he says, this whole temple thing is obsolete. It's all leaves and no fruit And just like the fig tree was cursed and died, this temple will also be utterly destroyed because it's not serving the purpose that God commanded it be created for. They had fallen more in love with this temple than with God. They would swear by the temple and by the offerings given to the temple and not by God. Not that swearing by God is necessarily this good thing we should all do. We're actually warned against it. But God used that. Jesus would call them on it and go, Even in your misguided swearing, it shows your heart is more attached to that temple than it is to your God. The temple looks good and has no fruit. It will be destroyed just like the fig tree. Same day, the disciples would have connected some dots here. Again, for us, that happened all the way back in Mark chapter 11. So many things have happened since then. For them, that was about 10 hours earlier. What was up with the fig tree? The temple will be destroyed. Oh, they're the same. So, so Jesus kind of, in warning them against the temple, says, don't get, don't get drawn in. As beautiful as it is, there's death inside. Much like its leaders, it's a whitewashed tomb. It looks great on the outside, but has death inside. And it will be destroyed. There's a passage that happens next that we're going to skip this week and come back to next week uh, because it kind of follows more with what happens next. So we're we're going to skip ahead uh, to Mark chapter 13, verse 9. We'll come back to the uh, 3 through 8 next week. But Jesus warns them the temple will be destroyed. And then he says this to them, but you be on your guard. They will hand you over to Sanhedrin's and you will be flogged in the synagogues. You will stand before governors and kings because of me as a witness to them. And the good news must first be proclaimed to all nations. So when they arrest you and hand you over, don't worry beforehand what you will say. On the contrary, whatever is given to you in that hour, say it. For it isn't you speaking, but the Holy Spirit then brothers will betray brothers to death and a father his children or his child excuse me children will rise up against parents and put them to death and you will be hated by everyone because of my name but the one who endures to the end will be delivered the the part that we didn't take time to read today again we'll look at it next week but essentially the disciples come up and go this whole destruction of the temple thing Jesus how how are we going to know when that's going to happen And Jesus gives them a list of things. Uh, People are going to come saying that they're the Messiah and wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines. He gives them all these things, but he says, don't be deceived by those. That's a red herring. Don't fall for that. He says, instead, be on your guard. And then he tells them they're going to be handed over to the Sanhedrins, the local governments. They're going to be flogged in the synagogues. That'd be like being called up here in front of a local church and being flogged with whips, with sticks, with sticks. You'll be handed to governors and kings. Father will betray son. Brother will betray brother to death. Children rising up against parents. He goes, but you be on your guard because suffering is coming. You be on your guard because hard times are coming. This seems like kind of a jarring pivot from Jesus. Think about this, this came from his disciples going, Jesus, look at this building, isn't it incredible? And Jesus says, oh, by the way, be on your guard because you're gonna be handed over to local officials to be flogged. Your, Your own family will turn against you and betray you. You'll be arrested. You'll have to stand trial in front of governors and kings. Be on your guard. And you go, Jesus, that's quite a pivot. I think what Jesus was doing was tied together and almost saying this temple and its religion will utterly be destroyed. Here's what you actually need to be on your guard about. Don't worry about what happens to this temple. That's not your concern. But instead be on your guard to suffer well. If you're one of Jesus' followers and he just goes, by the way, let me give you just, I mean, it's just a couple sentences, but a glimpse into what's coming. You're going to be betrayed whipped and beaten, stand mock trials, all of these different things. Anyway, let's go get some dinner. You'd kind of be like, what are you, what? What are you, following you is supposed to be a good thing. What are you talking about? And Jesus is telling them, be on your guard. Suffering's coming and I want you to suffer well. So let me ask you, this question again, so we can talk, because this this can be some confusing stuff, and I'd love to to hear your thoughts on it. What does it mean to be on your guard to suffer well? Well, What is Jesus actually telling them in this passage, other than, hey, here's some things that are coming. Yeah, good to know, Jesus. What does it mean to be on your guard because of the suffering that's coming? Maverick? Um, uh, Okay, to know it's coming. How does knowing it's coming... Help you be on your guard. It's a tough one. Mhm. And you know, you the
1: Okay. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, even just to know that it's coming. Jesus is going, look, I don't want you to be surprised because think about it, the, the temple, the, the old Jewish religion was all about if you're on God's good side, everything will be good for you. You'll, you'll rise up and throw off any nation that tries to come against you. You will have all kinds of rain and the harvests will be great because of it. Like there was all of this good stuff in the Old Testament that was tied to walking with God. And now Jesus is going, look, That's that's dead. That that will be utterly destroyed. There's a new way, and it doesn't look like the old way. So be on your guard. Mark 13, 13, the the end of that uh, teaching of Jesus is, you will be hated by everyone because of my name, but the one who endures to the end will be delivered. He's giving them a bit of a roadmap. He doesn't say, but the one who escapes suffering will be delivered, right? The one who endures to the end. And that word endurance literally means to remain under. You're going to be arrested, flogged, put on uh, false trials, have family members rise up against you. But the one who remains under that, the one who suffers well, will be delivered. Doesn't say we'll get out of jail free, but we'll be delivered. We'll walk with me. We'll find everything that they need. So prepare yourselves now to suffer well then. Because here's the thing. I like the Old Testament religion a little bit better, if I'm honest with you. As long as I'm good and do the right thing, God gives me everything good and life is pleasant and there's always plenty. That that appeals to me. That is a very Western Christian thing. That's what we're kind of drawn towards. Do good, be good, and God will give you good. But that's not actually the New Testament religion. That's not actually what Jesus says following him is about or will get you. He promises you will be hated because of me. I live my life, and this is a very, certainly American thing, probably even broader than that. I live my life in suffering avoidance mode. Every situation I walk into, I go, where's it gonna be uncomfortable? Where might I not get what I want? And how do I work the system to get around that? If something's uncomfortable, how do I get out from under it as quickly as possible? I can't even handle being bored. Think about this, it's silliness. We can't even go to the bathroom without our phones. I can't not be entertained for the three minutes it should take. I'll spend 20 in there instead because I've got my phone with me because I can't even handle the thought of being bored for three minutes. Even that feels too much like suffering for me. And avoid, 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 entertain, I see someone walking into a dangerous situation and handling something in a way that's gonna hurt them or hurt other people. I feel like I should go say something to them, but mm, what if they don't wanna hear that? What if it leads to an awkward conversation? What if, what if? I'll just take a step back, I'll just avoid instead. I approach my life, and many of us do the same, in suffering avoidance. What's the way to get through it with the least amount of pain as possible? That's how we approach life. But Jesus says part of following him is that we will suffer. We will have people turn against us. There will be false accusation. There will be, I mean, back in his day, this was very literal arrests and floggings and death. Not the same as our American culture. We're, not, we're, we're free to come and worship. We don't have to worry about the police breaking in you know, and arresting us for being here. I don't think we could handle that if it did happen, because we can't even have, handle having an awkward conversation. This is—I've I've read this last month, and actually Kim read it a couple weeks ago, and we started discussing it because I knew it was there, but it surprised me that this was in Scripture again. In 1 Peter chapter three, verse seventeen, Peter telling the people to, to live upright, godly lives. And he says, for it's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God after being put to death in the fleshly realm, but made alive in the spiritual realm. I don't know if you caught it there. For it's better to suffer for doing good, what's the next part say? If that should be God's will. And Kim and I started having this conversation of going, again, I knew it was there, but it still surprised me when I found it, that at least at times, it's God's will for me to suffer. Well, that doesn't sound like a good God. That doesn't sound fair. That's our take on it. That's how we have approached Christianity. But there are at least times when it's God's will for us to suffer. We tend to read where Jesus said in Mark 13, be on your guard, they will hand you over. We would read that as going, be on your guard, avoid it. If you see the police coming, turn and run. I warned you this would happen so you could avoid the suffering. That would be our approach. But Jesus says, be on your guard because this is gonna happen. It's my will for this to happen that you would be arrested and flogged and stand trials. Why? so that you would be a witness to them, that the good news would be proclaimed to all nations. And actually, when you're in those situations and things are hard and you're questioning and going, what am am I even doing here, what happened? He said, don't worry, because the Holy Spirit will be with you. And when they start questioning you and you don't have the answers, I'll supply those. I will be with you in a way you can't imagine when you're going through suffering. You will know me and my presence in a way that you won't in any other way. Suffering is actually a gift that God offers us, and it's a gift that we turn tail and run from most often. At least I do. Maybe you guys are nailing this. I see suffering coming a mile on. I see even a hint of it, and I start plotting and planning. How do I get out of this? How do I avoid this? How do I throw someone else under the bus so that I don't have to to be put into that situation? But it is God's will for you to suffer at times, just as Christ also suffered. He says, be on your guard so that when persecution and suffering hit, you can endure to the end. Enduring suffering is the point, not avoiding. Anyone telling you that suffering isn't from God is selling you something. You cannot find a book in the New Testament where the people of God's suffering isn't tied in. Sometimes very deliberately, like Peter saying, look, sometimes it's God's will for you to suffer so that you can become like Christ and God can use that to advance his kingdom. Sometimes it's more subtle, but it is all throughout the New Testament. Jesus' followers are going to have suffering in this life and they're called to endure it, not avoid it. If it was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for us. John chapter 15, if the world hates you, understand that it hated me before you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. However, because you're not of the world, but I have chosen you out of it, the world hates you. Remember the word I spoke to you. A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep your word. It is a weird thing that we do. We have to do some mental gymnastics that we look at Jesus and the suffering he had and think somehow we're called to just avoid it all and just live like wealthy, getting to do whatever it is we want to do in life and going, if we're called to follow Jesus, where did his life lead him? Into suffering, but ultimately into life. Where did it lead every disciple he had? to suffering. Every single one of them was martyred. John, they tried and failed. They tried to, the church history teaches, they tried to boil him in oil and he climbed out the other side, said, what else you got? And they said, we'll just shipwreck him instead. Every single one of them suffered for following Jesus, but it seems like a foreign concept to us that somehow we shouldn't have to suffer. If if suffering's around, that means either God's not good or I've done something wrong. And we start looking for a way out. Instead of saying, how do I now put myself on my guard so that when suffering hits, I can endure until the end? We don't need to go seeking out suffering. Please don't hear me saying that. We don't need to find ways to have people persecute us. That is not our call. But the old religion, tying this back into Jesus' teaching of the temple, The old religion represented by the temple was about fame, was about power, was about look at me. The new religion represented by Jesus' very life is about walking with him, be it through plenty or want, joy or pain, following where he leads and enduring until he leads us out. Paul would say this in Philippians chapter four. He says, I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know both how to have a little and how to have a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Had Paul just avoided any sense of danger or cost or suffering? he would not be able to stand and boldly proclaim, everything I have comes through his strength working in me. Most of us can't say that. For most of us, this is kind of a weird thing that we know is there, but we try to avoid. We like the having plenty. We like the well-fed and the abundance. We avoid the in need. We avoid hungry. Yet, because Paul was willing to lean into those times, When they came, he didn't go searching them out, but when they came, he was able to say, here's the thing I've recognized, not because of the times of plenty, but because of the times of want, I've learned that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So let me ask you this. And this is more of a practical question. How do we live on guard so that we can suffer well? What, what does it look like? Jesus was telling them it was a command. Be on your guard. Again, not to avoid, but so that when it comes, you can suffer well and endure. How do we live on guard? And when you're just it, it's spiritual discipline. Like, that is how we do it. Did I mention Kim's reading a book on spiritual disciplines? If you haven't been here the last couple weeks... No. Uh, Spiritual disciplines, uh, and actually, we'll, we'll talk about those here in a minute. A very practical approach to being on your guard. What else? David? Um, paying attention to
1: Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 Being Being aware. Right now, there's so many publications and websites and all these things you can go to. Voice of the Martyr is one that we heard from Shirley a couple weeks ago um, here. And we kind of regularly keep up with them of just saying, here's what's happening to brothers and sisters around the world. And not in a way of going, wow, they must have done something wrong. Oh boy, if they had faith, then they wouldn't be in jail for their... And none of us, I don't think we hear those stories. And I don't think any of us naturally go there. But if we were in those situations, we would go, Jesus, what did I do wrong? Why am I in jail? But we hear the stories like we did a couple of weeks ago of, in China, a, a brother, a pastor who is in, in prison, complete isolation, fed moldy rice, all of this stuff because he refuses to say that Jesus is anything but Lord. And we hear that and we go, God, what incredible faith this man has. Well, would I have that same faith? If I was put in that situation, would I be able to say the same thing? Would I be able to endure as that brother is? I know the right answer is, yes, I should. But would I really be able to? Do, I, do we ever even stop and have those kinds of thoughts and questions? There are people that what Jesus taught in Matthew 13 is real life currently today. There are more martyrs in the world today than at any point in time in human history. More martyrs for the Christian faith. Do we ever stop and even put ourselves in those shoes? How would I handle that? Would my faith even be strong enough? Somebody else, how do we, like practically, how do we live on guard? And not only they didn't have anything except what was given to them; they were content because they had Christ. And you, you could hear uh, Paul's teachings, and we'll look at some other places uh, where Paul teaches here in a moment. Where he goes, look, even if I have nothing else, the the plenty, the want, the hungry, or well fed, he kind of plays these things off each other. He goes, but as long as I have Him, I have everything I need. That is a foreign concept to us because we have Walmart. And the thought of going hungry for most of us is kind of insane because we're like, just put it on credit, go to Walmart, get what you need. Like, They lived in very much a, man, if we have any form of drought, we're all going hungry. It was was very tied together. For us, it's a weird concept. But they learned, it's not look at the gifts he's given us, look at the gift giver. Paul Paul would very clearly go, man, I can deal in any of these situations because my eyes are so focused on him. That as long as he's with me, what can this world do to me? A couple practical things, tying into everything that you guys were saying. How do we live on guard? Uh, The first one is this. Learn to view sufferings as an opportunity for God to transform. Uh, A couple passages here that talk about this, and then I'll give you a little uh, practical. Philippians 3.10 I share this one regularly because we love the first half. We don't even quote the second half. My goal is to know him, speaking about Christ, and the power of his resurrection. We love it. And the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. We love that first part. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection. How? Through the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to him and his death. Paul wasn't avoiding sufferings. He was going, I know that in sufferings, I'm being conformed to him and I will understand the power of his resurrection more clearly and more greatly than I ever could any other way. James chapter one, this gets quoted all the time. Consider it great joy, my brothers, whenever you experience various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, but endurance must do its complete work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. The testing of your faith. Testing always involves hardship, suffering. The testing of your faith builds endurance, which God uses to lead you towards maturity, completeness, lacking nothing. Suffering is an opportunity for transformation as we fix our eyes on Christ, but only if we endure if we're looking for a back door, how do we get out of this as quick as possible? We will miss it. Romans chapter 8. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed to us. Paul, in the book of Galatians, goes through some of the things that he suffered. He gives kind of a, a couple paragraphs of the cliffs Notes. Uh, Yeah, I've been beaten, I don't know how many times. I've been given uh, 40 lashes, save one. That's 39 times, hit with a stick. That's happened to me five times. I've been shipwrecked a couple times. People are coming against me. I've been stoned, they thought, to death before. And these things that we would look at now, and just just picking one of them, and we would go, oh God, I don't know if I could even handle that. And he just lists them. Yeah, that happened five or six times. I, I lost count. And he says, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time, that whole list isn't even worth comparing with the glory that is going to be revealed. I don't even go back over those things in my mind because I know that what God is using them to work in me is of such a greater worth. What's a little suffering? And again, this seems crazy to us because we also read Paul's whole life in a couple chapters in Acts. But for him, it was years and years of just enduring. Lord, what do you have next for me? Even, man, when you start, like when Paul is introduced in the book of Acts and in Acts chapter nine, when he meets Christ and the scales fall off of his eyes and there's new life birthed in him, God God sends him to a, a man named Ananias. And Ananias goes, man, Saul's a bad dude, Jesus. Don't bring him over here. I don't wanna talk to that guy. And he goes, no, 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 I've changed him. And then he says something so telling. I've shown him how much he must suffer for the gospel. That that was Paul's introduction, excuse me, to following Jesus. Paul, or Saul at the time, I'm giving you new life. Come follow me. But from the get-go, here's the warning. You're gonna suffer. You're gonna suffer a lot. And you're gonna know me in a way that thousands of years later, people are going, yeah, but he's Paul. He's a super Christian, right? No, he just understood what it was to suffer and to endure. Is this making sense? Is this, because again, it's a pivot from, from where Jesus has been now into this, but we have to live on guard. Learn to view suffering as an opportunity for God to transform. And the second, this is a very practical way, spiritual disciplines are practiced suffering the reason most of us struggle with spiritual disciplines, whether that's reading my Bible and praying, whether that's fasting, whether that's silence and solitude, whether that's giving and generosity, or gathering to worship, there's, there's a whole list of spiritual disciplines. The reason that we struggle with them is because they all, at their core, involve suffering. And sometimes we go, well, that's not a big deal. You can't really call having to read your Bible suffering. Well, then why do we struggle with it so much? Because we don't feel like it that day. Because we're, we didn't get anything out of it, Because whatever it may be, really what we're describing is it was uncomfortable. It wasn't something I wanted to do, and that's the beauty of the discipline. It's practiced suffering. Sometimes in, hey, I'm skipping a meal today, which at first sounds like no big deal. Four or five hours into your day, it's a big deal. It's practiced suffering because I don't want to avoid the things that God is calling me to because they hurt. And so I'm going to practice enduring in some relatively small ways. I'm going to turn my phone off and I'm going to sit in just stillness and silence for five minutes. Right now you're hearing it and you're going, no big deal. What's the problem? Three minutes in, you're like, it's been an hour. I can't do this. It's suffering, but that's the beauty of the disciplines. They help us to practice suffering in small ways, in manageable ways. None of us goes straight from just sitting here in a pew to in prison, proclaiming the gospel one day to the next. We're all on the path. And this practice suffering of spiritual disciplines is a practical way to be on your guard, None of us knows where our country will be in 20 years, where the church will be in 20 years, what will be legal, what will be illegal. None of us know. We assume that what's happening today will just continue forever. We know from history that's not the case. What if one day it did become illegal to be a Christian? Would your faith sustain you? If all of a sudden now you are hated for speaking the name of Christ, which could even happen today, but maybe the the scale grows. Would your faith endure? Just being 100% real with you, I don't know if mine would. Currently where it's at. I look at disciplines and go, God, I need these. I need to see suffering not as a roadblock in my way but as an opportunity to learn to trust you even when things don't go my way. As an opportunity to be reminded that my life is not about me and my comfort but it's about you and your kingdom. We have to learn to live on guard. One of the most dangerous things I think for the the Western church is that we were allowed to get comfortable. We became the majority for a while, the mainstream. And so we could just, yeah, show up if we want, don't if we don't, who cares, it's fine. Read your Bible if you get a chance, who cares? Because the stakes are so low we've been lulled into a false sense of security. We don't need each other. We like to be together if it works out, but we don't need one another. Not truly. We don't need the word and the transformation that God promises because the bar's been set so low. Just be a, a pretty good person and you'll be okay. And we've bought into it. And we don't know when that will come back to bite us. We have all, each and every one of us, been called to suffer for the king we even call him the suffering king and we've been called to be like him disciplines are one small way to do it suffering will also come to you naturally just through following jesus and in those times watch your reaction is it to pull out is it to find the exit as quick as possible or is it to remain in and go jesus what is it you're trying to teach me in this how are you trying to use this to build my faith to maturity and completion? Or to be turned tail and run and we'll miss the whole thing? So let me pray and close and I'm going to ask the music team to come up. Lord Jesus, not a fun message, but it is so consistent in your word that those who follow you. We'll have suffering. We'll have people that dislike us for our faith, even hate us for our faith, and maybe in some points even turn against us for our faith. We will be treated unfairly. We will be ridiculed, mocked. We should be. Because they they hated you. They ridiculed and mocked you. And we're not better than you. We want to follow in your way, whatever may come. And Lord, there will be good days where the sun shines and and it's easy to follow you and we will praise you on those days, but there will probably be more when it's hard. When it feels like suffering to follow in your way, to become the man and the woman that you have called us to be, may we in those days choose to lean in and endure because you will use those days to mold us far more than the easy days. May we become your people may we may we love the things that you love and hate the things that you love or hate and, and speak when you would speak, may we stand up for those who can't stand up for themselves and, and all of the things we see you doing in your scripture. and Lord when the world turns its sights on us, may we not avoid the suffering, but may we endure it because. In that suffering, your presence will be made known to us like no other time in our lives. We will see you and know you on that day in a greater way than we ever could on this day. So may we begin to take steps. May we live life on guard, that we would suffer well, that we would endure. And that we would, like Paul, be able to say, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. So move as only you can. Again, God, I I don't have the heart to even pray suffering on us. Whether that would be the right thing to pray or not, I don't know. But when suffering comes, may we suffer well. And may we know the power of your resurrection because we fellowship with you in your sufferings, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.